So this certainly is for you. But secondly, the methods and principles and truths that are contained in this passage are applicable to every man and every woman in the body of Christ. And as we apply them, we can learn how to love one another as a member of the body of Christ. So this is for everybody. Now for the last two weeks, we've been buried in one verse. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, where we learned that the husband has one simple charge. That's it. Love your wife. There was a clarification, and that was love your wife as Jesus loves the church. And we noted that this is a very difficult area for all men. In fact, it wasn't just difficult, was it? It was downright impossible. Because when you begin to see how Jesus loves, it is an impossible thing for man. We said that man has a problem largely along three lines. One, he has the flesh. The flesh, by its very nature, seeks to exalt itself. So every man is always going to be concerned and having to fight the struggle with the flesh, which wants to see its own interests pursued rather than the interests of another. So that's a problem. Secondly, we said that man has a conquering mentality, a perverted mindset because of the power of sin and the fall. And he oftentimes tends to neglect the cultivating role, which God gave him both roles, right, back in Genesis. He made him a conqueror, he made him a cultivator. Uh, We don't like cultivator, we like conqueror. Because we like Warrior Gabor, right? Oh, that's why we like Tim Allen, right? Turbocharge. We love that stuff. And we oftentimes neglect to cultivate. But here's the key thing. That is the very nature of love is the nature of God. Love, agape love, is an attribute of deity. We are humanity. So pure love is not of man. If you notice the overhead, we've pointed out that uh, man can produce romance... Man can produce affection, but man cannot produce unconditional love. What we need more than anything else in order to fulfill this charge is none other than God. God who is love. And we don't need God helping us to love. We don't need this quasi-love. We need God himself with his own love in and through us to other people. That's the way we really want to love, isn't it? With a perfect unconditional love. We need the fruit of the Holy Spirit Himself, the real thing, God's love, flowing through us. Because that's how Jesus loves. And we noted then that Jesus loves with a sacrificial love, a love that's willing to die for another. Very clearly stated in that passage, Jesus gave Himself for the church, verse 25. It's an unconditional love. He loved us, Romans 5, while we were yet enemies. But last time we focused on the fact that this isn't enough. We need to go a little deeper than that. If we're going to love the way Jesus loves, we've got to first ask the question, who is Jesus? And we said, Jesus is God. So if he's God, that means he's the infinite, eternal God. Well, if he's an infinite, eternal God, how does he love? With an infinite, eternal love. And so when it says, how do you love your wife, Bill? Don't you just love this? It means you've got to love Kiki with an infinite love. A love that can never be measured. As much as you love her, you can always do it better. And Kiki said, Amen. That's wonderful truth for ladies. But also, we've got a lover with an eternal love. So you loved her at 11.59 yesterday, Steve? That's great. 12 o'clock's coming. See? And you've got to continually love her. Forever and ever and ever and ever. An eternal love. And I trust you begin to see that you and I can't pull this off. We need to admit, first of all, that we can't do it. Now, I want you to think just for a moment about this issue of an unconditional love. It's a marvelous thing. God loves us with no expectations, no demands. So that means that He loves us not because of what we do. It means that He loves us not because of what we're going to do. He loves us not because of what we don't do. He loves us not because of who we are. 
He loves us with a love of just because. That's awesome. Just because what? Just because that's who he is. He is love. So Dirk Smith, my brother, he loves you not because of who you are. He loves you because of who he is. That's awesome. Because it's his nature. It means he's never going to stop loving you. And this is a love that we need to go beyond the knowing of to the doing of. And we're going to talk about that in just a minute. But this is a love that goes beyond knowing. It's a love of experience. Uh, how many of you have ever read the scriptures where it says the Holy Spirit fell on them? You ever read that verse? Gang, this is a write-down. This is more than a write-down. It's a burn into your brain. The word fell upon, you know what it literally means? To embrace or hug. Why the translators didn't translate it that way, I don't know. But the Holy Spirit embraced you, Steve Meek. The Holy Spirit reached out and gave you the biggest divine hug possible. Why do we need to translate it that way? Because we don't just need a knowledge of love, gang. We need an experience of love. We need to know beyond the mind to the experience that we are loved. And the Holy Spirit Himself has provided that. That's awesome. Isn't that awesome, Johnny? He has embraced you. Incredible truth. So what we saw then, very simply, is with our context, that loving your wife like Jesus loves the church is not something that you can pull off. Right, Bruce? It is a direct result of being filled with the Spirit. There's a context to this passage. When we are filled with the Spirit, there'll be some fruit. We will sing with praise. We will have thanksgiving. We will then have submission. These are all fruits of the Spirit. Relational results. Galatians 5 deals with personal results, right? When you're filled with the Spirit, when you have the fruit of the Spirit, you'll have love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, kindness, all that sort of thing personally. But Ephesians 5 is dealing with relationships. And when you're filled with the Spirit, you'll have relational results. Relationship, first of all, to God, then to each other. And it's a marvelous truth because, ladies, when you're called to submit to your hubby, it, it, isn't, it isn't something you pull off in and of yourself. Certainly you cooperate with an exercise of your will, but it's something that the Holy Spirit can produce in you. Isn't that neat? Because sometimes that guy's awfully hard to submit to, isn't he? And all the ladies said, Amen. Amen. <laughs> See? And guys, when it says love your wife, the wonderful truth is, like Jesus loves the church, he doesn't call you to do that in and of your own resources. He lives in you for that express purpose. Glorious truth. So it's the message of Ephesians 5 is I can't love my wife like Jesus loves the church, but because he lives in me, I can love my wife like Jesus loves the church. Awesome truth. Because it's his love released in and through us as he reproduces his life in us. And what happens then, I trust you see the dynamic of this, is that we have the love of Jesus flowing in and... What's the matter here, son? <laughs> he said they look like bugs. <laughs> we have the love of Jesus which then fills us and then flows through us to another. And I hope you realize what this means then in the context of a husband and a wife. People ought to be able to look at our marriages in the church and see Jesus. You realize that? They really should. You know what that tells us? It tells us that marriage is not a civil institution. It tells us that marriage is not the states, it's not the courts. And please hear this, it's not even the churches. It is the Lord's. He himself is the author of it and he himself is the dynamic in it. 
Many of you have a desire to be a missionary. You want to be a missionary? Let the Spirit of God so fill your life that love fills your marriage so that other people can look at you and see Jesus. That's a missionary. I challenge you to look at your own marriage and ask yourself, the people around you, what gospel do they see? You can do so much labor in ministry, but what gospel do they see when they look at your marriage? Can they see Jesus the head? Can they see Jesus in submission? Can they see Jesus the unconditional, sacrificial, infinite, eternal lover flowing in and through your relationship as a husband and a wife? You see, that's what this passage is all about. My dear brothers and sisters, we've got to own this. We must go beyond the knowing to the doing. We've got to do more than just read this passage and exegete this passage and say, there, we've got it. We've got the correct understanding. Husbands, love your wife. Wife, love your church. Hooray, we know it. That's a sham. And you know it. It's got to be fleshed out. It's got to be done. It's got to be seen in order for the truth to really be fulfilled in our life. Watchman Nee made an incredible statement once. He said, we have no right to say that we have come to know something until it has changed our lives dramatically. End quote. Isn't that true? Voltaire made an incredible statement. How many of you know who that guy was? Yeah, he was an atheist living in the late 1700s. And this is what he said. Show me your redeemed life and I'll be inclined to believe in your Redeemer. Powerful charge. You see, the truth is, gang, people cannot see our minds. They can see our lives. And it's not enough for you and I to walk out of here and say, I know Ephesians 5, it says husband love and wife submit. It's got to be done. Or it'll never be seen by the world. And that's just reality. And nowhere is it more necessary to see this than in marriage. The most intimate union available to mankind. The most intimate relationship. That's where people are really going to learn about Christianity. Because Christianity, if you think about this, is relationship. It is truth, yes. But it is truth applied to relationship. When you look at Christianity, you see truth having impacted relationship between you and God. When you, when you see Christianity, real Christianity, you see truth impacting individual lives which affects relationships within those lives. If you don't see that, you've got a short-circuited Christianity. You've got a dead orthodoxy. Well, we're right by God, but there's no life. You see the problem? One writer put it this way. When God tells us about love, he doesn't give us a definition of love. He doesn't give us a methodology, technical advice, or principles. When God tells us about love, all he does is give us the prince of love. And he says, look at Jesus. So that you can learn how Jesus loves, so that you can do the same. End quote. I would add, as you trust him by faith. Beloved, for this morning, that's what I want to do. I want to look at how Jesus loves. Pick it up from where we left off last time and see two final areas, two final characteristics 
of what he intends his life in us as we love to look like in a marital union. So let's turn our attention to Ephesians 5. Here we go. We noted in verse 25a that God said through the Holy Spirit and the Apostle Paul, love your wife. That's the charge. Very simple. Guys, it's not hard. He doesn't give you 100 different things to do. He says, love your wife. Now, with your wife, it means you've got to do a thousand different things. But it's a real simple charge. Love her. Well, what do you mean by lover? Well, just look at Jesus. When you look at Jesus, you'll learn what love is. So this is really, from verse 26 on, nothing more than an illustration. An illustration or a clarification of what love is. Now, let's pick it up from there and look at verse 26. Love your wife as Christ loves the church and gave himself for it. Verse 26, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Now, beloved, as I read through the commentators, I don't know if you've ever thought about that. I had this thought last week. Commentators. They're a bunch of commentators. You see that? And, and sometimes, sometimes that's the way they are when you read this book, their books. It's so easy to get wrapped up in what you're doing that you miss the whole flow of thought. And a lot of the commentators that I read did just that. Look at these verses. He might sanctify the church, cleanse the church, wash the church with water by the word, that he would present it to himself a glorious church, no spot, no wrinkle, that it would be holy and without blemish. And as you look at those words, do you see, I hope you see, how easy it would be to get lost in those words? Because what are they talking about? What our blessed Lord Jesus did for us. And it would be so easy to just begin to, whoa, Jesus and the cross, and just, you know, wow. And rightfully so. Right? It ought to wow us. Right? All the people of God said, wow. Wow. I mean, it's awesome. But we've got to realize, dear people, that these two verses have a context. And the context is the relationship of a hubby to a wife. So we've got to take the care that we don't get so wrapped up in what Jesus did that we miss the purpose for which we find these words here. Do you see that? You look confused. Here's the point. Because what Jesus did is so awesome, it would be easy to end with what Jesus did. It was put here for a purpose, and that is so that we would pick it up and love the same way. You see that? That's the key. We can't just wow. The wow's got to be put to our feet. Well, as you look at those passages, what can we say? It says that he took a bride and he washed her and he sanctified her. Jesus took a bride very, very differently from the way we take brides, men. He, he took a bride that was not wise, not beautiful, not smart, a bride that was rather quite foolish, ugly, dirty, and wretched. That's not the way men choose a bride. If men choose a bride like that, there's something wrong with the man. 
When men choose a bride, they look for someone who's very smart, very pretty, very gentle, very submissive, very loving, that has a lot of money. <laughs> Jesus, though, chose a bride that had nothing. Think about that, that had nothing. There was absolutely nothing in her that merited love. Yet he loved her anyway, and in the process, what he did is he transformed her. He purified her. I would just put it this way. He took a bunch of little piglets that were wallowing in the muck of the world and he transformed them into sheep that frolic in the pastures of the living God. The love of the groom transformed the bride. And that gives us the fifth characteristic of Jesus' love. He loves sacrificial love. He loves with an unconditional love. He loves with an infinite love. He loves with an eternal love. And he loves with a purifying, transforming love. A love that changes the beloved. It's an incredible thing. Jesus' great love for the church would not allow him to leave the church in its normal state. But Jesus would remove any sin, any taint, any stain, anything that would hinder the glorious purity of his, of his bride. And he took whatever was there and he threw it as far as the east is from the west, never to bring it up again. He took everything that was dirty and filthy about you and I and he cleansed us completely. White as snow. And that's the same kind of love that a husband is to have for his wife. He will seek to guard her and protect her. To lead her away from anything that's unwise and lead her in to righteousness. Guys, that woman that you have claimed as your bride is more than a cook and a housekeeper. She's more than a child trainer and an occasional sex partner. She is a gift from the hand of the living God Himself. And the incredible thing, I hope you enter into the dynamic of it, is that as you begin to love her, as you begin to release the love of Christ that is in you, that you will begin to experience as you walk in intimate relationship with Him, that incredible love is going to have a transforming, purifying effect on her, just as Jesus' love had a purifying, transforming effect on you the day you embraced Him by faith as your Savior. I wish that we could enter into an understanding of the dynamic of the power of love. The dynamic of the power of the love of God. Meditate on it. We move in a new covenant to a brand new motive. Out of fear from the old covenant, we move into a much higher college graduate type of motive. It says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. It is the love of God that will transform your life and lead you into holiness, not the fear of God. Not in a new covenant economy. Paul said it is the love of God that constrains me. It is the love of God that leads me to serve you. It's the power of love. And the incredible thing then is this supernatural love has been placed in you, hubby. And as you love your bride, I believe that it will progressively transform her. as they receive it and experience it for themselves. Craig Glickman, in his commentary on Song for Lovers, said this. He said, you know, have you ever wondered why spring has always been the season for lovers? The background of romantic literature in every century of man's existence. They always write about spring when they write about love. You know, the Bible's no different. Song of Solomon talks about in the springtime how they went out together experiencing their love. Everything is fresh. New life flows through the world. Happiness and colors triumph over winter's boring gray. Whenever a couple is in love, it is spring for them. 
Their lives are fresh. Everything in life has a new perspective. What was black and white is now in color. What was dark is now light. And then he writes this. He says, I remember in high school it would often happen that one who was formerly a rather ordinary girl would suddenly become noticeably attractive almost overnight. We of the Girl Watchers Brigade, 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 brigade you stumbled over that too. We of the Girl Watchers Brigade, we need somebody who has a gift of interpretation. We of the Girl Watchers Brigade, amen, amen. <laughs> would, would ask ourselves why we had never noticed her before. The answer was simple. We hadn't seen this brand new version. She had fallen in love and it had transformed her appearance. She was now happier, better dressed and a much more lovely person. Too late for any of us, but the lesson remained. New life is found when there is new love. Your love, guys, will transform her. Your love will allow her to become a kind of woman she never could have become without you. As she rests in you, her safe harbor in this very wicked world, given to her by the very hand of the living God. Incredible thing. Love her with a purifying, transforming love. And that brings us to the last one, which is that we love her with a binding love. Let's pick it up in verse 28. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loves his wife loves himself, for no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, even as the Lord, the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and they shall be joined unto his wife, and they shall become one flesh. A binding love. What I mean by that, first of all, is twofold. One is a, a binding in terms of a oneness or a union. And the Holy Spirit really wants us to see this. If you look at verse 28, he says, first of all, love your wife as your own body. When your body's hungry, Lottie, what do you do? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you feed it. When your body's thirsty, Conan, what do you do? You thirst it. Right. When it's tired, Steve, you sleep it. See, even you use words like that, Steve. And when your body's dirty, Kevin, hopefully you will wash it. You care for your body. Because it's your body. So it is with your wife. See, the truth is, you don't love her, please own this, as if she's your own body. Enter into the dynamic of the truth of the word and let it say what it says. You love your wife, guys, because she is your body. That's how one you have become with her. It's, it's stated very clearly in verse 31. Look at it. For this cause... A man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and those two shall become one. The word there, joined, proskalo, means to glue together. So in God's economy, this is really what happens in marriage. It's one plus one plus one equals one. Excuse me. One plus one equals one. And that, of course, is only accomplished by Jesus in you. The one plus one plus one equals one. What happens is you have man and woman, and through that comes union. That's why Paul says in verse 28, if you look at that, if you love your wife, guys, you're actually loving yourself. That's how one you are with her. If you tear your wife down all the time, guys, critical of her, negative, you're tearing yourself down. It's that simple. You're destroying your own union. You're doing it to yourself. You've got no one to blame but you. 
If you're abusing and using her, you're abusing and using yourself. That's how one you are with her. Now watch this. This is true because verses 28 through 30 tell us that you are as one with her as Jesus is with the church. Verse 29, no man ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, even as the Lord does the church. Verse 30, for we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. The Holy Spirit couldn't have made it any more clear. You are as one with her as Jesus is one with the church. You take Jesus, you take we, and we become the body. Jesus being the head and we his body. Intimately connected. If you sever the head from the body, there's no more life. That's how one we are with Him. One of the most neglected verses in the New Testament is this one right here. He that is joined to the Lord is one spirit with Him. And I'm going to tell you, this is probably the, the biggest area, as I see it, that the church struggles with, is coming to understand this concept of union. The fall has so plagued our minds with independence and selfishness that we have a real tough time coming to grips with union. Look at this verse. Write this verse down. Don't you dare let it be neglected in this place. He that is joined to the Lord is one spirit with Him. Now, at first glance, that almost looks like this New Age junk. Doesn't it? Well, why do you think Satan's throwing out the New Age junk in the first place? Because he's trying to counterfeit as close as he can to the real thing. What does this mean? That we're one with him. Alright, here's go. Did you become Jesus? Melinda? No, that's heresy. You don't become God. There's only one God. Did Jesus become you? That's heresy. It's pantheism. You are a union, and yet you are two different persons. Romans chapter 8 verse 16 says this, The Holy Spirit testifies to our spirits. How many spirits you got there? Two. And yet 1 Corinthians 6.17 says we are one spirit. So you got two spirits unionized as one. But they remain separate. We didn't become Jesus. Jesus didn't become us. We entered into a union. Sounds an awful lot like marriage. See, see what we're getting at? Marriage pictures Jesus. This has some incredible ramifications for us. It means that all we have now belongs to who? To Jesus. Kiki, all your shame, all your guilt, all your sin, it all belongs to Him. Jack, all your weakness, it now belongs to Him. Steve, all your failures now belong to Him. And I mean all your failures now belong to Him. Right? But it also means then that all He has now belongs to who? Us. You have His righteousness. So how righteous are you, Luke? Very? As righteous? <laughs> that sounds like a college student lawyer type answer. Are you in law school? No. You gotta go. You could be just like Steve. Never give a straight answer. Are you as righteous as Jesus? Yeah, because he gave you his righteousness. Room to boast? 
You boasted in yourself, Dan Hunt? No. Because he did it all. You have his peace. You have his joy. Second Peter chapter 1, you want some verses. You have become a partaker of the divine nature. Did you become God? No. But you became in union with God in a way that boggles the mind. It's incredible. And this is the same kind of love with which a husband is to love his wife. Now enter into this. This means then that when Jesus provides for us, which he does, he's actually providing for himself. Think about it. When he provides for us, who's he providing for? His own body, of which we are one with him. Not to provide for the church would be not to provide for himself. Do you see that? Do you really see it? That's how one we are with him. Enter into this gang. God is not against you. So many times in the church we're beat up so bad by, by pulpits that are really insecure men trying to beat the flock up so they can control them. Instead of teaching the flock who they are so they can stand on their own two feet. God is for you. That's how one you are with Him. But don't stop with the work of Christ. Let the work of Christ change your life. Guys, apply it in the context. That's how one you are with your spouse. That's why, husband, you should diligently pursue doing for your bride. Because when you do for her, you're actually doing for yourself. Isn't that incredible? So when she needs a listening ear, what did you better do? Give her a listening ear. Because you're actually doing it for who? For yourself. Because you're one with her. If she needs a hug, what do you better do? Hug her. Because she's one with you. And if you fail to do, you're failing to do for yourself. That's how one you are with her. Two separate persons, just as Jesus and you are two separate persons. And yet you're a union. So let's apply this. Need a married couple. Need a married couple. <laughs> this is the first time I've ever seen you in the front row. <laughs> It'll be the last two. That's right. Okay. That's good, Kevin. Conrad and Janice, stand up and face everybody, would you? There we go. But these two became one. Isn't that right? Now, question, guys. Did she become Conrad? No. Did Conrad become her? No, even though she tried to make him be her. But it didn't happen. You see that? Now the incredible ramifications of this. Everything that Conrad owed now belongs to her. And everything that belonged to her now still belongs to her. See? The overhead says so. Now everything that she brought to the marriage now belongs to who? To him. Two separate people and yet what? One. One. Thank you, guys. You can sit down. You, know, you want to walk to the back now or next week? <laughs> it's an incredible, incredible thing. Oh, how I pray that we would understand oneness. Oneness with God. And how much He wants to fill you and meet your need. So that that oneness can spill over into our marital union. So that the world can see Christ. And then so that oneness would spill over into all of our relationships because as Ephesians 4 says, we are what? One. And it's time to stop letting all the petty little doctrinal differences separate us when Jesus has made us one. 
The one rallying, binding theme is Jesus. And Lottie, if you hold to, to the fact that, uh, you know, there's a post-trib rapture, that's not going to separate me from you, man. You'll learn the error when on the way up. You know? It's okay. <laughs> that's right so a binding love guys that's the kind of way we're to love our wife with a oneness the fact that we've been glued together oh we gotta hurry alright secondly another idea behind binding love is the idea of permanence permanence Proscalo meant to glue together right question when you and I glue something together do we do so with the intention or purpose that we're going to separate it later you glue that china dish together, thinking, I'll break it again. That's really dumb. That's exactly the way it is with God. God united himself to you, beloved, with the intent, with the express purpose of never, ever, 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 ever again separating from you. And if you want some scripture on that, there's John 10:28. I will never allow you to be snatched out of my hand. Philippians 1, 6. He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. I have sealed you, Naomi, until the day I deliver you to the Father. Ephesians 4:30. You get all these people who get wrapped up in losing their salvation. They don't enter into the whole idea of marriage. When God joined you together as a couple, what does he say? Let no man ever separate. So why would we have a thing called losing your salvation? When marriage pictures relationship. Do you see that? Why would he say don't ever separate but then say, well, you can get lost again. Is that a picture of Jesus? No. That's why God says, I hate divorce. That's why God said, what, what he's joined together, let no man ever separate. Because when the world looks at divorce, it sees a tainted view of Jesus' relationship with the church. Try throwing that at somebody next time they're arguing with you about eternal security of the believer. Because then God never would have said, don't separate marriage. Because it's a union that pictures our union with His. Very easy thing to, to, to put on them. He hates divorce. On any terms, for any reason. There's no qualifiers in Malachi 2.16. Just as He hates it. Now He allows it. And He forgives it. Just like He allows and forgives all sin. And all the ones who have sinned said... Amen. But God loves the divorcee. And God forgives the divorcee. And I'll tell you, the church has done a terrible job of communicating that. But it doesn't change the fact that he hates it. So gang, the application is very clear. Just as God never separates himself from us, when a husband and wife join together, they should never separate. The idea of a binding love is a, is a love of permanence. It's one plus one who now became one. And because you're now one, when you divorce, you don't have two ones again. You know what you have now? You got two halves. See, you, you really became one. That's why divorce is so devastating. And could carry the pain and the trauma for years, sometimes even to the grave. If people don't receive the healing of Jesus Christ very serious thing binding love is a love of permanence and there's no greater example than the book of Hosea you all know the story God told Hosea to marry a woman named Gomer should have been his first clue that trouble was coming <laughs> as you know she played the harlot and the adulterer 
But God had that man, Hosea, continue to love her no matter what. Do you know that Hosea continued to give the man food and money that she was living with? So that he could care for her? That's some kind of love. In the end, life in the fast lane, as you know, took its toll. She was now a woman that was used and abused. Cast out onto the streets. No one else would now take her. Dirty and old. Her only recourse was to sell herself into slavery. Hope for the best. Hope for some benevolent owner to buy her. Otherwise, she would soon die on the streets. Enter Hosea, her husband, and own the dynamic of what's happening here. These are not printed words on a page, gang. This is real life. This is a man whose wife has continued to repeatedly seek adultery against him. Spurned love. Own Hosea's horror and pain as he sees his wife let up the auction block there to have her clothes stripped off because they sold slaves naked. Feel the anger in his heart and the hurt and the agony as his wife is shamed publicly in the destitution of her sin. Own it as all the rest of the buyers mock and laugh. Surely there were some who said, oh, you're going to have to pay us to take her. And then Gomer, can you imagine what goes in, on in her mind when her eyes look up from her shame and catch Hosea? Why is he here? After all these years, the old fools, he come to mock me? And then can you imagine her horror as he begins to bid for her? Oh, so this is what he's going to do. And abide me for himself. Why? To torture me? For the rest of my pitiful life? Oh God, maybe. Maybe he'll just kill me. And it'll be a welcome relief. She's lost in her own thoughts so deeply she doesn't even notice that the bidding is over. It hasn't taken long. There weren't many bidders and the price was cheap. She's only brought out of her thoughts and reality sets in when Hosea takes the platform to take possession of his wife. But as she looks at him, she doesn't see vengeance. She sees compassion and forgiveness. And as she moves from his eyes down his body, she sees in his hands not a whip, but his own cloak, his very own cloak, to reach out and to clothe her and to cover her shame. And as he leads her off the platform, he says to her, You shall no longer play the harlot. You shall be my bride, and I shall be to you. That's permanent love. That's binding love, guys. God in his word has allowed divorce. That's not his ideal. Not even for adultery. He allows it. But it's only because of the hard heart of man which finds it so very difficult to love. And that's how we're to love our wives. If you look at verse 32, what does he tell us? Oh, this, this is a great mystery, this Jesus in us. I speak concerning Christ and His church. It's so hard to come to grips with, we probably never will in this life. But we can know it. Our marriages can picture it. 
So the Holy Spirit instantly brings it back to our responsibility and to our roles. Look how he ends it. Look what he says. Nevertheless, don't get so focused on Jesus here, what Paul is saying. I know it's easy to. It's right to. But we've got to move on and apply it. Let every one of you, in particular, so love your wife as yourself. And wife, see that you reverence your husband. He repeats it. Why? Well, because it's difficult. It is. We're fighting the flesh here, releasing the Spirit of God in our lives. But he's also saying, I believe they appreciate the difference. Appreciate your differences. We are so very, very different. A friend of mine, actually he's an acquaintance, I haven't seen him in a long time now, Eddie Egrich, way back in the late 70s, began to do a series on male-female differences long before it became popular to write on this in the Christian community. Now we got all the books, Men Are From Venus, Women, Mars, whatever that is. But he was writing about the male-female differences a long time ago. And there are two, two illustrations that stuck in my mind when he did this. He said this. He said that uh, he was having a barbecue and he was doing his research and a friend of his came up to him and said, Hey, Eddie, where would you get the steaks? He said, well, I got them down at Winn-Dixie. He said, tell you what, do me a favor. Go to my wife, ask her the same question, the same tone of voice. The guy goes over to his wife and says... Hey, Sue, where'd you get the steaks? Why, what's wrong with them? See it? We're just a little different. He gave another tremendous illustration. He, he says, somebody asked him for directions, and he says, okay, I want you to go down Segan Lane, 2.5 miles up to the interstate. I want you to turn left, go towards Baton Rouge, go down three miles there to Essen, uh, take a right when you get to Essen, and then go up 1.7 miles there to Blue Bonnet, and this is how he gave directions. He says, do me a favor, go ask my wife the same question. Well, what you do is you go down this street, uh, past the new shopping center, up to that white house with the pretty little picket fence, and the woman goes, oh, the one with the pretty tulips in front? Yeah, that's the one. And, and see, guys, gals, we got to receive each other. We fulfill a purpose to each other. Women... That hubby is going to bring stability. He's going to bring purpose. He's going to bring single-mindedness. He's going to bring all those things to your union. Receive him. It is there for a purpose. It's to balance you. And guys, that woman is going to bring into your home the ability to make your house a home. She's going to bring in a gentleness and a creativity and a sensitivity. And you, you one-minded clod hopper, you need to receive it. And when we do, we build a circle of love. There was an old Stephen Annie Chapman song, I think it was, called A Circle of Two. It's really a circle of three. We can't pull off a circle of two, gang. We need Jesus. Father, thank you for this wonderful passage and the marvelous truths that we are not left to ourselves, but Jesus in us to be able to love like you've called us. May these truths move off the page to our lives. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I would like all of our married people to stand. If your spouse isn't here, that's okay. You stand anyway. It's been a long time for some of you. Some of you have taken some things for granted. Some of you get neglectful. Some of there has been a lot of hurt. Like the song that Brent sang last week. You know, it's, it's a mystery why we hurt the ones we love the most. 
We've had our share of heartaches and sorrows and troubles. We can look back and laugh at it now. But a mystery keeps haunting me. How you hurt those you love most of all. What we need is a real love expression. I want to bless you today. And I would like all the rest of you single people to stand up and to put your hands on someone who's close to you who's married. Let's do that right now. You minister to them. My Father, you are the one who has established marriage. It was your plan and only with you can we work it out with joy. You were the one that, was, that said it was not good for man to be alone. And now the joys can be doubled as we share in the happiness of each other and our burdens can be halved as we divide the load. Father, bless this husband. Bless him as a provider of nourishment and clothing and sustain him in all the pressures of his labors for bread. May his strength be her protection. May his character be her pride and may he so live that she will find in him the haven for which the heart of every woman truly longs. And Father, bless this loving wife. Give her a tenderness that will make her great. A deep sense of understanding and a great faith in you. Give her the inner beauty of soul that never fades. Teach them, Father, that marriage is not merely living for each other, but that it is two joining hands to serve you. Give them a great spiritual purpose in life, Father, as they seek your kingdom, that the other things would be added to them. May they not expect of each other the perfection that belongs alone to you. May they minimize each other's weaknesses. May they be swift to praise and magnify each other's strengths. May they see each other through a lover's kind and patient eyes. Give them such assignments, Father, in their walk as to teach them character. Give them enough tears to keep... Enough failure to keep their hands clenched in yours, but also enough success to encourage them in their walk with you. Oh, Father, may they never take each other's love for granted. But may they always experience that breathless wonder that exclaims, Out of all this world, you chose me. And Father, when their lives are done, may they be found then as now, hand in hand, still thanking you for each other. May they serve you happily, faithfully together, until at last one shall lay the other down into your arms. This we ask through Jesus who is the great lover of our souls. Amen. You may be seated. I would like all of you single people to stand. And all of you divorced people to stand, even if you're presently married. And if you're married to a spouse who's been divorced, I'd like you to stand with them. Because divorce brings problems. It brings two separate households. It brings kids having to have two different sets of parents. It's hard. It's hard to, to pull off. And sometimes this, this new spouse can be jealous of the old spouse. And it's hard. And singleness is hard. Uh, we have a physical hug from a spouse. But oftentimes, you know, it, we don't feel that with God. What I shared today about the Holy Spirit falling upon you is for you. May He give you a hug. May He embrace you. That you would experience His love. If you don't understand that, dear single people, you will try to find love in a human being and you'll wear them out and frustrate yourself. Learn now of His love. 
before you're married. I don't just want them to stand. I want all you married people that are struggling a little bit to stand too. You can go ahead and admit that. Listen, one plus one equals what? What does it equal, Johnny? In the natural world. It equals two. Isn't that right? I'd hate to see your checkbook if you think one plus one equals one, brother. You're in deep trouble. One plus one does not equal one. And yet that's what God is calling us to do. That tells us there's going to be what? Conflict. Oh, oh gosh, if you can't admit that in the church, where are you ever going to admit it? So all you married people, if there's been some struggle lately, you stand up right now. I'm surprised we weren't unanimous on that. (laughs) Any of you that are left sitting, would you put your hand on someone, stand up and come around them? We've asked Brett today to uh, sing over you. And I pray, our prayer right now is that the Holy Spirit would fall upon you, embracing you with a divine hug.